James Reed was an American philanthropist, investor, janitor, and gas station attendant. That's a <laughs> Wikipedia entry that Morgan Housel, the author of The Psychology of Money, says is his favorite one. Let's, let's go through that one more time. Philanthropist, investor, janitor, and gas station attendant. How's that possible? How's it possible that someone with such low income from such a rural background, from such a, you know, relatively underprivileged background could be so successful and, and provide so much value to other people financially? So let's learn a little bit about Ronald Reed to set up today's book, The Psychology of Money. So he was born in rural Vermont. He was the first person in his family to graduate from high school, and he didn't go to college. He fixed cars at a gas station for 25 years and swept floors at JCPenney for 17 years. He got a two-bedroom house for $12,000 at age 38 and lived there for the rest of his life. His main hobby was chopping firewood, which is interesting from a Zen perspective of chopping wood and carrying water. This is Zen saying, chop wood, carry water, as a, as a guide to life, as an expression of Buddhist teachings. So he died in 2014 at age 92, and roughly 3 million other Americans died in 2014. Less than 4,000 of them had a net worth over $8 million, but Ronald Reed was one of them. He left $2 million to his stepkids and $6 million to his local hospital and library. And everyone who knew him was baffled. How did he get all that money? So there was no secret, like many things in life, there was no secret, there was no lottery win, no inheritance. He just saved what little he could took the unglamorous small actions for long periods of time. And after decades and decades, it compounded into more than $8 million. So now let's contrast that with a guy called Richard Fuscone. So Richard Fuscone was a Harvard-educated Merrill Lynch executive who died a few months before Ronald Reed. Uh, he didn't die. He was in the news, though. <laughs> Sorry. But he was, yeah, Harvard-educated Merrill Lynch executive with an MBA, had a successful career in finance, and then retired in his 40s to become a philanthropist. The former Merrill Lynch CEO praised his Fuscone's business-savvy leadership skills, sound judgment, and personal integrity. And he was once on a list of 40 under 40 uh, for successful business people. But... Then everything started to fall apart. So in the mid-2000s, he borrowed heavily to expand an 18,000-square-foot home in Greenwich, Connecticut that had 11 bathrooms, two elevators, two pools, seven garages, and cost more than $90,000 a month to maintain. Then the 2008 financial crisis hit, and it turned his financial situation into dust. So his various houses were foreclosed, and... Basically, he ended up completely falling apart. So what's really interesting about this anecdote and this comparison is what Morgan, Morgan Housel says here is uh, 
it's hard to think of another industry where someone with this much expertise could be outperformed by a layperson with no experience or no expertise. So, quoting, quoting from the book, it's impossible to think of a story about Ronald Reed performing a heart transplant better than a Harvard-trained surgeon. And this kind of informs Morgan Housel's thesis that financial outcomes are driven by a variety of different things, but that soft skills and behavior are very, very important in financial outcomes. Now, he does also talk a lot about how luck drives financial outcomes. And that's an aspect of this book that I find cheap and anti-human. And it's something I really disliked about this book. Uh, because if you're a, a career poker player, each hand of poker has strong elements of luck. But there's still a skill to the game of poker. And a skilled poker player comes out on top over the long run of poker games by acquiring knowledge, by practicing, by understanding the game very deeply, by building relationships so they have capital to bankroll their games. So I strongly disagree with the thesis that most success is a result of luck. And I mean, Ronald Reed is a great example of that. This is not a lucky guy. I mean, in a certain sense, he is, and there's obviously degrees to all these things, but he's definitely one of the more underprivileged people you could find in the U.S., right? I mean, he doesn't have a college degree, he's a high school grad, he works blue-collar jobs, uh, he comes from a rural background, and yet the guy was able to become a multimillionaire. So to me, when you have examples like that, I find it extremely anti-human and undermining of human agency to excessively pontificate about the role of luck and how much, you know, luck influences outcomes. And I just think it's, it's dumb, it's unhelpful, and it makes me think of this Peter Thiel essay called You Are Not a Lottery Ticket, where he talks about the fact that investors like venture capitalists can diversify their holdings and place a lot of bets, but you don't have that option. You have your one life and you have an obligation to cultivate yourself and try to think clearly and succeed to the best of your ability with the one life you have. And you have the ability to do so. And he looks at examples of serial entrepreneurs who succeed multiple times in a row. So this stuff is not rocket science. And even if it was, the people are rocket scientists. It's, it's not like you like show up on Earth and like you're born a rocket scientist, right? I mean, you have to cultivate yourself into that. So that strain of thinking in this book really turned me off at first. Um, but there's a lot in this book that's that's really good. And so I, as I as I read this entire book. I've revised my opinion of it that it's just like a terrible book that no one should read. That was what I first I thought at first, but ultimately I did find some of the stuff in this book very useful and I've already applied it to my finances. So I think you're going to find it useful as well. So he starts off after describing this 
paradox, paradox of expertise and success in the financial domain. And he talks about the fact that no one's crazy. People's financial decisions are influenced by their circumstances and life history. They may seem irrational to you based on your experiences, but they're making a decision from their vantage point that, that makes sense to them. And I thought the most poignant example of this was, you know, why are low-income people the number one buyers of lottery tickets? Well, he goes through and articulates what could be the rationale of a low-income person buying lottery tickets. And he says, hey, we live paycheck to paycheck and saving seems out of reach. Our prospects for much higher wages seem out of reach too. We can't afford nice vacations, new cars, health insurance, or homes in safe neighborhoods. We can't put our kids through college without crippling debt. Much of the stuff you people who read finance books either have now or have a good chance of getting, we don't. Buying a lottery ticket is the only time in our lives we can hold a tangible dream of getting the good stuff that you already have and take for granted. We're paying for a dream, and you may not understand that because you're already living a dream. That's why we buy more tickets than you do. I thought that was very poignant because it's humanizing, and you could see why they might feel that way in their position. Now, of course, you have the Ronald Reed scenario where if you're in that position, there is still an exit strategy and rationality still benefits you. And I think that's another thing about this book that I found a little odd is he emphasizes doing things that make you feel good as opposed to doing the rational thing. He's like, hey, listen, make suboptimal choices because your emotions will be placated. And to a certain extent, I think that could be reasonable. But I also think a, a better message would be try to steal yourself and manage your emotions to the best of your ability to make the most rational choices you can. You know what I mean? Like why, what, why give in to your base emotions and do things that are suboptimal for you and your family financially? And, and this, this is a, a, the lottery ticket version is kind of a low income version of that trap, but on the high income end, there's, there's a lot of stuff too, like that, like, this guy holds 20% of his assets in cash. Now imagine right now, with the inflation rate being what it is, holding 20% of your assets in cash. I mean, just because you can't see inflation doesn't mean it's not real. And it doesn't mean it's not heavily impacting your prospects and the utility of that cash you hold. So I understand his argument for holding some cash. But I think to give in to your emotions... And forego rationality is, I think it's unwise. I mean, especially since you're going to have an endless cascade of emotions pushing you in different directions. Some of them are adaptive and rational. Some of them aren't. And you have to be able to sift between the two. And it, it, you, it's important for your overall life to cultivate the skill of processing, interpreting, and managing your emotions Understanding which emotions are based on rational evidence and which ones are distractions just pulling you away from positive outcomes and pulling you away from living your values. So one thing that's interesting 
and speaks to how people are influenced by very different financial circumstances is retirement. The concept of retirement is very new. So specifically in 1955, the New York Times wrote about a growing desire but in continued inability to retire. They said, everyone talks about retirement, but apparently very few do anything about it. <clears throat> the labor force participation rate for men over the age of 65 and over was above 40% until the 40s. So in 1880, 78% of men over the age of 65 continued to work. And in 2010, it was 22%. It was only in the 80s that people that this idea took hold broadly that people should have a dignified retirement. So the 401k didn't even exist till 1978 and the Roth IRA wasn't born until 1998. For that reason, it's important to understand that financial advice that comes from different eras may not apply to our era because it's just very different as far as the vehicles available to us. The knowledge that has accrued as well as just the overall like financial landscape and people's expectations and goals. The chapter that really like infuriated me about this book starts with an anecdote about Bill Gates. So he talks about how Bill Gates went to Lakeside school and there were very few computers in the country, but Lakeside had a, uh, a computer because this Navy pilot turned high school math teacher named Bill Dougal like really petitioned and pushed hard for it. And without that computer, Bill Gates wouldn't have been Bill Gates. And I find this to be just a completely idiotic statement because if you took Bill Gates and like transplanted him to an average high school, like he's not going to be a scrub. You know what I mean? Like, it's insane to think that changing some of the circumstances of someone's life just completely derails them and success is not possible from other uh, entry points. You know what I mean? Like there are people from backgrounds much less privileged than Bill Gates who've had massive, massive success. And I also think it depends on how narrowly you define success. So if success is I want to be a billionaire that runs a... PC computer and puts a computer on every desktop or in every household or whatever. Yes, like that's there's a lot of luck involved in that. If success is I want to be independent and do better than I'm doing now, like there's a almost a guarantee barring a true catastrophic black swan type event that you'll be able to attain that. And I mean look at Ronald Reed as an example. So <clears throat> I find I find this chapter somewhat silly, but the general thesis he's trying to get at later in the chapter is that luck and risk are intertwined and that's fine i mean he has this thing about like be careful who you praise and admire and i just think this is just stupid like i mean as it's not totally stupid because there is such a thing as resulting where you look at the results of a career of a decision of a hand of poker and you assess the quality of that thing based on the result and that's not intelligent 
but it is worthwhile understanding causation, right? Like Steve Jobs is a good example where much of what he did was counterproductive, but there were some things he did that were extremely helpful. Like, for example, when he came back from Next, slashing down on Apple's portfolio of products and focusing on just four, having a really focused, clear, simple value proposition that cut through the noise, enterprise products, consumer products, and an entry level and a performance level. And that's it. You know, so like, <clears throat> I would say like the the way I would really phrase this more than like, with a little more nuance and utility than what he says is, look at the people you admire in detail, understand their failings and their successes, and try to understand why they've succeeded. And obviously you're looking at this in hindsight and there's a fair chance you're going to see what you want to see. So triangulate with other people, you know, study a lot of different types of people, study fundamental psychology, think from first principles. But yeah, I mean, I just thought this was a little bit silly. And uh, he says, focus less on specific individuals and case studies and more on broad patterns. I mean, on the one hand, yes. On the other hand, no, right? Like, I understand taking the external view, starting with the base rate and then adjusting the probability based on the particulars of any given case. On the flip side, we are individuals. We're individual human beings and studying individual human beings is a very useful exercise because it helps you see how someone like you with a lot of internal struggles and challenges of their own they've been able to leverage their autonomy to do great things. And I mean, we all know that we could destroy our lives using our individual agency very rapidly. We could tarnish our reputations, destroy our careers, just end our lives literally with an action that we've taken. Therefore, on the flip side, since that establishes the agency we have to affect the outcomes of our life, it would also be the case that we could materially significantly improve our lives using our personal agency, right? So I think it's helpful to look at the base rate for certain things. Like for example, if you're trying to make a financial decision, it's helpful to know what is the average return of companies at large in the economy, of small cap companies over the long term, of mid-cap companies, of growth companies in different periods. Like, I think that's totally fair. But I also think, like, you are not an average person. There is no average person, right? You're mired in particularity, and I think that you have to be artful about how you take the external view and how you emphasize your own autonomy and agency and ability to materially impact your own life. You have to do both. And I think that, yeah, I think it's really important to do that. And I also think just ascribing success to luck is an anti-human and really twisted thing to do that doesn't, doesn't help people. To ascribe highly specific types of success or the magnitude of success to luck is a different thing, right? Like you you can't guarantee you're going to be wildly successful, but you can guarantee you're going to be more successful. And I think that's really the important thing.
you know? So another aspect of the psychology of money that I think is very important to consider is that of the hedonic treadmill. This is kind of a core tenet of Buddhism that there is suffering. And when they talk about suffering in Buddhism, they're talking about this term called dukkha that is best described as the sense of a carriage wheel not fitting its axle on a bumpy road. This sense of persistent discontent and our expectations never really being met quite right. And the, the delta between our expectations and reality prompting us to just continually chase and chase and chase and be pushed down the road of life by these forces of grasping and aversion to no avail. And in some cases, to the effect of exacerbating our suffering. So this is another subtle one and complex one. Because... Buddhism is not saying do nothing. And in fact, there was a big, I don't want to say revolution, but definitely a reformation in Japanese Zen under the tutelage of Hakuin against the professing of do nothing Zen, of the Buddhist ideal being someone who is just disengaged entirely, produces nothing, does nothing, has reached a happy contentment and is satisfied with the fruits of enlightenment. Hakuin's vision is a vision of eternal practice, of the expression of Zen through the arts, through poetry, through flower arrangement, through the tea ceremony, of an engaged Buddhism, and also of a Buddhism that isn't complacent. You know? And, and I think that that's very important because the, the folk wisdom that this guy is sharing in this book is, hey, nothing's ever enough, so just, just be happy with what you have, you know? And falling in love with what you have is a very wise thing. But it also doesn't mean that you have to be stagnant and you have to make yourself smaller and contract yourself and be slothful and indolent and just kind of like roll along. Okay, I mean, Zen masters are some of the most quote-unquote content people you can imagine. They, they, they train in equanimity, right? Which is, uh, I would say, something like contentment. Um, and yet... It, that doesn't mean that there are these like lackadaisical people who just like disengage from life and society and just kind of fall over and allow themselves to contract into nothingness. You can have vigor with contentment. You can have joyful action. You can you can have expansion of self. I mean, expansion of at least the works of self. I mean, in Buddhism, you wouldn't have. I guess you might have expansion of self, expansion of your sense of self. But the point here is just like, yeah, I mean, one analogy I really like for this is if you go out into the garden and you see a flower blooming, right? It, it's not blooming because it's unhappy with where it's at. It's not blooming because it's, you know, comparing itself to other flowers and 
it it has to bloom to keep up. It's not blooming because it's like reaching for some ideal that it it can never meet. It's just blooming because it's blooming. It's a flower and that's what it does. And similarly, as a human being, self-enrichment, development of yourself, growth, expansion of the works of yourself, this is like a natural part of being a person. And I don't think we should... I think we need to find a way to have clarity and equanimity, but also have action and have the expression of those insights in beautiful ways, in meaningful ways that impact people and in ways that give us joy, you know? And maybe that's not what he was, maybe he wasn't even getting at that. Maybe I'm reading into some of his messages and taking them the wrong way. But if you look at Ronald Reed, I mean, I love the fact that he donated $8 million to charity. That's, that's incredible, okay? And I love the fact that he was a very contented person. But the life of, you know, a divorcee whose only hobby is chopping wood is something of a small life. It doesn't have to be. It's not necessarily that. But I just think, like, the ideal shouldn't be to just endlessly contract yourself into nothingness. You know? Um, but anyway, these first chapters of the book, I thought were the most, uh, infuriating and then the book gets steadily better from there. So this, this concept of compound interest is very interesting. Um, there's nothing new here for most of you guys, like compound interest, you earn most of your returns on the tail end of investments that compound and investing for as long as possible is going to help you achieve great returns not needlessly interrupting compounding as charlie munger says is one of the most important things here and an example of the power of compound interest is the fact that 81.5 billion dollars of warren buffett's 84.5 billion dollar net worth came after his 64 65th birthday Sorry, my watch buzzed and made my brain stop working for a second. So I don't think there's really like much more to, to say about this. It's a pretty simple concept, but always important to remember. I guess one thing here that's interesting is if you were a technology optimist in the 1950s, you may have predicted that practical storage would become a thousand times larger, maybe 10,000 times larger if you were swinging for the fences. But few people would have said, it's going to become 30 million times larger within my lifetime. But that's what happened. And I find that pretty beautiful. And later on in the book, he talks about optimism and pessimism. And he has a really great little snippet along those lines. So he talks about Japan and the U.S. after World War II. And... Let me see here. So many dog-eared pages and so little time. Okay, here we go. 
So he talks about optimism and pessimism and how pessimism is a fashionable, cynical stance that just makes you seem more sophisticated. It also caters to our loss aversion and our catastrophism coming from our bloody atavistic past as tiny little apes scampering through the trees, being eaten and killed by every manner of man, beast, and natural force, making us little scaredy babies that like spooky stories and don't trust good news. So in 2008, during the financial crisis, this Russian professor wrote a story on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, and he said, Around the end of June, the U.S. is going to break into six pieces, controlled in, you know, in collaboration by China, Mexico, Canada, and the EU. And it's just going to completely split apart and the country is going to be destroyed. And this was not like the ramblings of a backroom blog or a tinfoil hat newsletter. This was on the front page of the most prestigious financial newspaper in the world. Pessimism is taken seriously to a much greater degree than optimism. And let's give you an example. So in the 1940s, Japan was brutally defeated. At the end of World War II, the country was in a very dire strait, or in dire straits. I guess in a dire strait would count because... You know, you can have, like, the Malacca Strait, which is a dire strait. It's, like, this bit of water between Singapore and Malaysia. There's, like, a lot of piracy. Anyway, so the average Japanese person in 1946 was eating less than 800 calories per person per day, just to give you a sense of how bad it was. Now, imagine if a Japanese academic wrote uh, in one of their newspapers at this time, Chin up, everyone. Within our lifetime, our economy will grow to 15 times the size it was before the end of the war. Our life expectancy will nearly double. Our stock market will produce returns like any country in history has rarely seen. We're going to go more than 40 years without ever seeing unemployment top 6%. We're going to become a world leader in electronic innovation and corporate managerial systems. And before long, we're going to be so rich that we're going to own some of the most prized real estate in the United States. And by the way... America will be our closest ally and try to copy our economic insights. I mean, this person would have been absolutely ridiculed and laughed out of the room. But this is what actually happened in Japan. So this relates to what we were saying previously, because it's just like optimism. Our brains don't process rational optimism well. You know, and I think this also ties into my comments about human agency. Like if you tell someone, hey, you have a high school degree, you're a janitor, you're going to be a millionaire, a multimillionaire by the time you retire, they're not going to believe you. They're simply not going to believe you. And yet that's exactly what happened to Ronald Reed. We don't believe in the compounding effect of small, unglamorous actions taken for long, long periods of time, decades, okay? Like, yeah, and again, I, I need to stop telling this anecdote, but this idea of things never being enough and egotistically chasing 
the approval of others or underestimating the amount of time that success takes. When I think of all that, I think of the fact that the startup I worked at once, the CEO was saying that we were going to have an IPO in two years. Okay, the company was about three years old. Or through, wait, 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 wait. No, the company was about a year old. I joined when there was like, you know, six other employees. And the CEO say we were going to IPO two years after that. So IPO in three years overall. And the average IPO takes something like 10 years, roughly. Now, after Glass-Steagall and the pain and inconvenience of being a public company, the amount of time that companies stay private is really increased. But the point of this is, this was a completely unrealistic expectation to put on everyone. And there was massive turnover on the team. There were hyper unrealistic sales goals being set that were not being achieved, obviously, because they weren't possible. They were fevered fantasies of someone who has no realistic idea of what business success really takes. Like, not business success like flipping a small company or starting to turn a profit, but business success like a large, self-sustaining company. You know, and I think measuring that time in the decades is a smart idea because it really does seem to take that long. I mean, this is true in many, many fields too. You know, you look at Joe Rogan's podcast and the guy didn't make a dollar for five years recording all the time. And Mr. Beast as well didn't make any money for the first five years. And again, this is a guy, these, these are guys who do this stuff all the time and also in the case of Joe Rogan, he's a comedian, so he practices the craft of telling stories and talking for his day job, too. And Mr. Beast, like, was just insane and did a lot of deliberate practice, which I've really come to appreciate doing jiu-jitsu. Namely, Mr. Beast would break down every aspect of the videos he's creating and ask, how can I make each thing better and practice and refine each subordinate element of the whole? And I've started doing that in jiu-jitsu lately, and my progress has really improved, um, which again has given me a strong belief in human agency. Okay, when you're learning jiu-jitsu, it really feels, I don't know about like other people, but when I started jiu-jitsu, it feels impossible to make progress because it's like so complicated and you're just getting your ass kicked all the time. And it's like, how does one even learn this skill? It's one thing to learn it in theory, but applying it against a resisting opponent is, you know, so challenging. And I found that actually it, 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 it is tractable. Obviously, people do succeed at it. So that's the first data point. Uh, and, and actually, this is a great example, too, because if you look at macro trends and not individuals, what you see is that 95% of people quit jujitsu, maybe more, before they reach their blue belt. And yet blue belts exist. And so do purple belts and brown belts and black belts and black belt world champions. So as an individual in the sport, is it worth your while to constantly hand ring and bemoan the fact that 95% of people quit? Or is it more worth your while just to figure out how to succeed? And it's my contention that you'd be better off figuring out how to succeed. And I think that a large part of that is 
deliberate practice is breaking down what is working, what is not working, and why. And for each thing that's not working, try things until you find something that works and figure out in what ways that's not working. So, yeah. It's an empowering message here on this podcast on Monday morning. It's actually been a a pretty fun one. I was feeling super worn out today because the the dog, we have a standard poodle named Loki. He's a fluffy, fluffy white standard poodle. And he has decided he just hates his crate. And he's just started barking his head off every night after his entire life of being fine. And so my fiance has like interviews this week. So I'm sleeping in a separate room with the dog to keep him quiet so she can sleep and be rested and the dog's keeping me up and yeah, so I was feeling super worn when I sat down to do this today, but it's actually been pretty fun and I'm I'm hoping it's it's useful for you guys because there are some there are some real gems in here. And speaking of which, I'm gonna start to move a little faster because there's quite a bit left I wanna talk about, but I wanna make this a reasonable length for you guys. So this is kind of an interesting one. So he, Morgan Housel really emphasizes leaving room for error in your financial choices. Leave a little extra money in your emergency fund. When you're planning your retirement investments, imagine that your returns are going to be 30% lower than historical returns. Because it it helps you to endure a greater range of outcomes, which helps you to not interrupt your compounding wealth, which ultimately will yield you big returns in in the long term. So I did act on this, especially because we're going into a rocky financial period, which is a great time to buy stocks. And I just kind of leaned out my spending to save and invest a little bit more. I was already saving and investing quite a bit, but I found a little bit more that I can invest. So that is a pretty good deal. So here's another important factor to consider. Namely, sometimes the odds can be in your favor, but the downside is not worth the risk. So Russian roulette is a great example of this. The odds are in your favor when you play Russian roulette. There are, let's say, five five empty, whatever, revolver barrels? Holes? I don't know. And one bullet. You know, for one bullet for every five deal. So the point is... You're much more likely to not get shot than get shot, but getting shot kills you. So that's bad. And it's it's kind of the same with money. The odds of many lucrative things are in your favor, but there's a small chance you're going to experience the downside for any given thing. And based on the fact that most financial instruments have this quality, you will experience the downside at some point in your life. And leverage really amplifies the, the the fact that, well, it amplifies this quality of 
massive success most of the time and then massive failure if failure comes. So leverage is basically like you're taking on debt to buy investments. And what that does is if the investment drops a certain amount, you have a margin call where you have to like cash out the investment to pay off the debt, which cuts short your compounding. So an example that Morgan Housel gives that I really like of the random vicissitudes of life is during the Battle of Stalingrad, there was a German tank unit in reserve on grasslands outside the city. And the tanks were all of a sudden needed on the front lines. And what they found is out of 104 tanks in the unit, fewer than 20 were operable because field mice had nested inside the vehicles and eaten away insulation covering the electrical systems. The Germans had the most sophisticated equipment in the world and they were defeated by mice. So the point is, shit happens and having a margin for error really helps you to prevent things from going wrong. And I've worked at another startup to give you another startup war story for lack of a better word. At this startup, spending was very conservative. Hiring was very conservative and very judiciously done with a lot of attention to fit and long-term career trajectory of people that were being hired on. And in this startup, when times turned bad, there was a much larger cushion to help weather that and actually capitalize upon that. Because think about this, when times are bad, I mean, obviously this is an overstatement, but let's say during an economic crash, right? During a stock market crash, stocks are cheaper. So not only does having a margin of error help you to survive moments like that, but it helps you to thrive because now you have money to invest at the bottom of the market. And this is another way that the rich get richer is they have enough margin of error to capitalize upon downturns. So though I overall do believe that learning to manage your emotions and navigate the emotional terrain of your mind is more important than just placating your emotions and giving into them, I do agree with Morgan Housel's thesis that your financial circumstances, your time horizon, your life history are your own. And there isn't necessarily a strict right answer with finance. You know, so I, I, I think there is something reasonable about that, right? I mean, if you're older then looking at, like, let's say you're 80, looking at the 30-year discounted cash flows of a company and investing on that basis makes no sense because you may not have 30 years left. So, you know... Your life is your own and make the decisions that make sense for you. But I would also implore you to listen to our shorts podcast where we've been talking a lot about rationality and objectivity and how to think more rigorously and less fallaciously. And also listen to the episode on emotion and rationality because 
it is possible to get better at managing your emotions and thinking rationally. And it's, it's a powerful thing to do and it's worth doing. So pessimists, so we were talking about pessimism before, but just touching back on that for a sec, Morgan Housel says, and I definitely agree with this, there's an iron law in economics. Extremely good and extremely bad circumstances rarely stay that way for long because supply and demand adapt in hard to predict ways. And I do think this is worth noting considering a lot of different things, you know what I mean? I think it's worth considering in terms of um, the housing prices in Florida, right? Florida gave people a lot of leeway and freedom during COVID. Florida has been emphasizing policies that a lot of people are attracted to. And cheap housing is part of what attracted people as well at one point. And now Florida, Miami is like one of the most expensive cities to live in in the U.S. You know, so adaptation. Adaptation curtailing the, the happy circumstance there or part of the happy circumstance there. And then on the flip side, while I do think that climate action has its place, and I think that striving for sustainability is a good thing as long as it doesn't create a vicious zero-sum dynamic and compromised growth that turns man against man and like, you know, lets the streets run red with blood because everyone's fighting over a shrinking pie. Um, I think that adaptation is underestimated in that context. In the sense that if you're, you know, standing on the beach and the tide's coming in, you're not just going to stand there till the water goes over your head. You might take a few steps back off the beach, you know, or if you're in uh, Arizona in the middle of summer, it's 110 degrees. You're not going to stand outside and continue to water your plants until you're skin blisters off right you're gonna go inside at some point so adaptation is, is a is a powerful force and something to consider and if you are feeling pessimistic and you're extrapolating present trends make sure you go out of your way to account for human adaptation and i think that's my last major message from this book. And I'll tell you, overall, do I recommend this book? Yes, I do. But I do not recommend it without without reading Peter Thiel's essay, You Are Not a Lottery Ticket. And that's in Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One. I highly, highly recommend that. And, and I think reading those, this book and that book together is a valuable thing. And I also think generally if you're trying to be more rational and like navigate the maze of your mind, read Annie Duke's Thinking in Bets, read How to Decide, read Map and Territory by Eliza Yudkowsky, read Knowledge, Reality, and Value by Michael Humer, or listen to this podcast and listen to especially, I mean, listen to both the long-form episodes and the short-form episodes. The long-form episodes are omnibus episodes on interesting topics, interesting books. The short form episodes are more so like daily 10 minute snippets of information that like right now is just building towards cultivating this toolbox of 
rational weapons and tools of objectivity and methods and patterns of rigorous thinking that can help you navigate the world more easily. I would say the long-form podcast is generally less dry. The short-form podcast is sometimes a little bit dry, but, you know, it's it's still got its moments, and sometimes dry information is valuable. So reach out to us on Twitter at rdmr underscore io. Contact us by email at contact at rdmr.io. Check out Reading Rebellion Shorts. It's called Reading Rebellion Shorts. And next week, our episode is going to be on two things. It's going to be on Bernard Crick's In Defense of Politics, a book written in the 50s after the fall of the Third Reich to defend political democracy against the rising tide of totalitarianism. To say, why is it worthwhile to have democracy? Why, why, why is the political process not just a, a sickening morass of base human behavior? And why is it something civilizing and worthwhile? And this book is a hard pill to swallow for me because I have a Ron Swanson-like tendency. I don't really like politicians. I don't trust politicians. I distrust government action in many cases, probably most cases. Uh, so it's been a it's been a good thing to really like rigorously investigate a, a well articulated defense of politics, and we're also supplementing that with a lot of commentary and critique from a friend of ours who is a senior congressional staffer, I believe. He's a friend of Ari, so I should ask exactly what he does, but I believe he's like a senior congressional analyst or staffer. And after our episode with Brian Kaplan on how evil politicians are, he gave us a, a lot of defense of politics and critique. And this podcast strives to be objective and not tendentious, so we're going to go out of our way to really dig into that defense. And with that, I hope you have a good week. Check us out on the short podcast feed during the week if you want more rebellious readings. Goodbye.